You're listening to Raising Curious Learners, a podcast from Britannica for Parents, where we talk to experts and discuss the issues and trends in child development, education, and parenting. Welcome back to Raising Curious Learners. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host, as usual, is Ann Gatzkowski. We're continuing a conversation that we started on the last episode of the show, but one that we've been having for a long time at Britannica for Parents, and that is how do we address inequity in education, both as an organization and as parents? It's September. This usually means the start of a new school year, where school halls are filled with kids saddled with backpacks and eager minds. But the COVID-19 pandemic has certainly changed what this back-to-school month means for children and families. And we know that there are some schools that are still offering face-to-face instruction, but really what we're reading is that across the United States, in many, many communities, remote learning and hybrid learning are the new normal. And I've been hearing a lot about parents who are actually hiring tutors and even forming, they're called pandemic pods. There are just so many different ways that families are really trying to make sure that their kids are still learning, but maybe in a safer way. And it makes sense that families are trying to fill in the gaps. But unfortunately, what happens is that there are many families who don't have those extra resources to hire tutors or to form pods. And this situation creates some issues of inequities in education that we're concerned about. Yes, and today we're actually going to be talking about issues of equity in education with our guest. She's a mom, educator, and researcher who has some expertise on this topic. Her name is Erica Ramberg, and she's a faculty associate with the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Hi, Erica. Hi, nice to be with you all today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, welcome, Erica. We're we're so glad you could join us. I'm especially happy to talk to you today. I've been talking to a lot of parents in Madison, Madison, Wisconsin, about equity in education. There are a lot of interesting projects and initiatives going on there. But I thought of you because of my experience working with you and getting to know your family when I was a school director in Madison several years ago. And you made quite an impression on me. We were having a school carnival with lots of, you know, carnival games and things to do outdoors. And the school had arranged for a police officer to come and park the squad car in the parking lot so that the children could meet the police officers. And you brought to my attention, very appropriately and discreetly brought to my attention, that having a police officer meet the families might not always be a welcome experience or a positive experience for all families, depending depending on their previous experiences with police officers. And I honestly hadn't thought about that in advance. And that was such an important moment for me as an educator to hear that from you as a parent. And it made me especially interested in talking to you today. I remember that and being nervous to communicate that to you, <laughs> but it also felt really important thing to share. Well, I know you're you're an educator, but you're also a mom who thinks about issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion as a parent, as well as an educator. To get us started, I wonder if you could maybe wear your educator hat for a minute and just talk in general.
general about what are some of the core issues of equity in education and how the pandemic has made those either more apparent or or even worsen those issues? Certainly. I mean, how much time do you have? Right? <laughs> um, unfortunately, right, the inequity issues in, in education in our schools are, are kind of vast and they're deep and have some long histories that are unfortunate. I think one of the, the main ones that I think about is just the denial of educational opportunity that happens to Black families, families of color, indigenous families, over time, there has been a real gap in what is offered to families. And we see that in the way schools are resourced, that schools in suburban areas or in more well-off areas of cities end up with more resources because families bring those resources in those school communities. And then within our education system, we know we've heard about the school-to-prison pipeline. So we know that children, once they are in the school building and in our education system, are treated differently. Their relationships with teachers are different. So our Black students, our children of color, are being disciplined at higher rates than our white children. Those discipline measures are often exclusionary, so we see higher expulsion and suspension rates for our students of color, which sets them off on a path of disconnection with the education system and towards our carceral system. So there, the, right, there's another one. We also know that the content of what's, what's being taught in schools often doesn't reflect so many communities who have long and rich histories on this land. We see erasure of indigenous histories. We see the way that, that Black history is treated and slavery is glossed over or children being taught that slaves were happy to be enslaved. So I think the content of what is taught in our schools also shows a real inequity of whose stories matter and whose histories matter and who we see as leaders in our country. And often the way that content gets partitioned out across a year, that it doesn't happen all the time, but we reserve it for Martin Luther King Day or for Black History Month. And we aren't engaging with, with these different people, with these different stories of our country across the whole school year. Those are just some of, of the ideas that come to me immediately when I think about inequities in education. And isn't one of the core reasons for inequities in funding, doesn't that come down often to property taxes in different communities? Yeah, I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert on, on the funding systems of schools, and I know that there are measures at state and federal levels to equalize some of that. But yeah, there are the formal measures of property taxes and how those get given out back to schools. And another one in this moment that I really think about is enrollment. We're facing a crisis of enrollment in schools and whether people are deciding to stick with their public schools right now in pandemic times. And so maybe not everyone knows this. My husband the other day was like, I don't think I would know that unless I knew you. <laughs> but that enrollment is a significant factor in the amount of money that schools get. They get funding per pupil. And in my district, it's the third Friday of the school year where attendance enrollment is counted. And that's how much money they get per student. I think it's for the next year, but it also impacts the budget cycle for three years. Those resources that we already know are allocated differently across our communities are set to see some real drops in amounts in the next couple of years. And that's been on my mind a lot and something that I am trying to be a part of educating people about so that they're making decisions for our community. And that's amazing that the counts take place on one single day. Yeah. And then all of the funding is determined by what enrollment looked like on that one day. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. 
So you were saying that because of the pandemic, you're seeing a drop in enrollment. I mean, are you aware, is that even if the school's trying to do a remote or hybrid learning, or is it just in-school enrollment? I think it's enrolled with the district. So I know that some districts are offering families all virtual, and if they have enrolled in that, I'm assuming that they will get that money. I know in Wisconsin, there's like a state-level all-virtual charter school that you can sign up to, but I guess that's charter. So the funding goes towards the school, not towards a community investment in public education. So it sounds like there are a lot of reasons why a public school might lose funding right now. The family might choose a charter school. A family might choose to homeschool. A family might form a pandemic pod and not enroll at the public school. All of these situations could create funding problems for a community, not just now, but it sounds like in the future too. Yeah. I mean, that is that is my understanding of one of the repercussions of this. And I think another one that I've been thinking about when I knew I was going to be talking with y'all is also pulling away from our public schools as an institution, as a public institution, by unenrolling your child, by pulling your child out. It does something to that idea that schools are these places that bring us together as communities, that they're a place for all children. And it erodes that idea. And I'm troubled by that also. Like there are these very tangible consequences that are dangerous and deserve our attention and our commitment. And it's just these big ideas, too, that are at risk if we see it as so easy. I I shouldn't say easy. I know families are struggling in so many ways in making these decisions. But if we find ourselves that, that we can and we do pull away from these places that aren't important for our communities, that troubles me too. It's this idea that I think when when people are making decisions about this and deciding to form pods and pull resources, use their personal resources for their personal child, that's the decision making that I really want to be a part of disrupting. That when you make a decision for your individual child, you are abandoning a a sense of community and a sense of collectivity and that we are in this moment together and that we always have been and the individual decisions you make have consequences for our community. So it sounds like the advice from from you and from other educators and parents who are concerned about the public schools and about equity in education, the advice is to stick with your public school, to register your child, even if you're going to be using other kinds of enrichment or supplemental education strategies this year, but to enroll and to be part of that community. Yeah. I mean, that is to me is a really baseline thing to do right now is to stay enrolled. Mm-hmm. So what about the the districts that are mandating in-person learning? They're not doing a hybrid approach unless there is, you know, a severe autoimmune issue or immunocompromised issue. You have to go in person. What are parents' options in that sense? Because I know it's important to stay in school, but it's also where their hands are tied because they don't necessarily feel it's safe to send their kid to school. That is a great question. <laughs> Um, I appreciate the push on that because I think right now in this moment, that is a consequence of being in person is sacrificing health. Mm -hmm. I think in any of these situations that feel complicated, I would always suggest reaching out and asking questions of that school and of that district to see what other options are available and having that really honest conversation that you want to stay invested in public schools. That's something you believe in and that's something you think is important and you're needing to really 
really think about the safety of your family. So what options are there for you to continue to support the public schools while also keeping your family safe? I guarantee if that is a situation you find yourself in, there are other families who are in the same boat who share those values of remaining invested and who are looking for their other options too about how to do it safely. Mm -hmm. And then I guess I would also say that there are other lines of, of work you can be doing in terms of helping and talked about a resource that she's looked at that came out of Madison, Wisconsin. There's a PTO here that's been really active in putting together resources and calling for equity action right now. Mm -hmm. And I have really drawn on their expertise and what they have pulled together. And one of their recommendations, which makes a lot of sense, is that part of our work in being equitable now is for advocating for what our schools need and what our communities need at the state level. Also, to get resources to mitigate the spread of COVID. Mm -hmm. So if that is a part of our work now, that's also really important. And it is really great to hear about families coming together and forming sometimes formal groups for advocating for their children's needs, for their community and their school's needs, or even coming together informally and sharing information, encouraging each other. It's harder to do now because we can't meet face to face, but it, it is great to hear that there are some grassroots efforts going on in communities to really support all families. Definitely. Erica, tell us about your experience as a parent and your family. What what are some of the challenges that you've encountered? Well, uh, so my children, I have an eight-year-old, a rising third grader, and a new kindergartner. So, um, goodness, it's, you know, and <laughs> I, I have the privilege of, of still having a job full-time, and so does my partner. So, you know, it's been a lot of navigating schedules to make bigger pockets of free time that we can be with our kids during the day. I tend to be a night owl, so I stay up late, and my husband gets up early and we work it out that way. It's really forced us to lean into our kids' independence sometimes and to say, hey, you can do this. You can find something to do for the next hour. Mm -hmm. I have to go do something else now too. And in some ways I've appreciated the chance to, to do that and expect that from them and have them live up to those expectations. And to also show them that, you know, I think about it from a gendered sense, like I am a woman and I value what I get from my work and to have them so readily have to see that and see me prioritize that sometimes over meeting whatever need they might have in the moment. I feel like that can be an important thing for them to see too. But no, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of mixed feelings of like guilt for not giving everything mm -hmm. that it deserves. Yeah. And I think a lot of frustration that we are not set up in a society right now to be able to hit pause enough mm -hmm. for everyone to be able to take care of themselves and their families and their community and the work drive also it just doesn't all align right now for sure and that is hard yeah it brings to the forefront how you always hear you have to just take a break take a breather for yourself back when it was a lot easier <laughs> you kind of were like oh yeah yeah and now you want to be able to take a breath and it's very very difficult it is it demands it demands different things from us and our routines and the ways of relating with each other I also really want to acknowledge that I am so privileged right to have that job right now and to feel like satisfied with what my job brings me. I know I'm speaking from a place of real privilege with that. 
You know, I know that you are deeply committed to equity and inclusion. Have there been any examples you can think of where you chose the uncomfortable choice or the difficult choice because you wanted to either demonstrate to your children what's important to you or just because you felt like it was the right thing? Sure. I think in in this moment with the pandemic pods and like, how are we providing these educational experiences that we want for our children? I mean, I felt that pull of like, well, let me get this extra person or this extra program that can be a part of our lives. And that'll be really enriching for my kids. And especially like when I get those emails about this thing, or I hear from a neighbor about that thing, I can feel that inside me that this urge to do this for my child. And usually when I feel that way. I've felt it enough times now. It's a familiar like pull for me that I can pause myself and examine it and think like, just because this sounds like a neat opportunity, does that mean it is an opportunity? Does that mean it's an opportunity that I want to take up for my kid? And what are the consequences of me choosing that for our family? One example over the summer I think about is pools. There are private pools. And in Madison, we now have a public pool. And the decision where a private pool that is very close to us, they were open during this time that we probably could have afforded, but we didn't go there. We did drop in at the public pool because it was important for us to invest in this public good, to have this experience where we weren't putting more resources into one place. A private pool is already sort of a well-resourced space and to keep adding our resources to it didn't feel like something we wanted to do. I think more connected to the education moment that we're in is that our kids were enrolled in after school and that after school program solicited all the families to see if they would do at school like in-person supported virtual learning. The kids would be expected to engage with what the teacher was giving them online but they would have other support. They would have whoever the counselors were, the after school workers were. Of course, when I saw that, I was like, oh, is that something we should do? Do I want that Mm -hmm. for our kids? Again, that feeling of like, okay, pause. What does that mean to take a seat in that position? Do we really have to do that? Who else might benefit from having that seat that our kids would take up? Mm -hmm. And then in being connected to some of the work happening at our school, understanding that they were trying to reserve seats in that program at the school for more vulnerable kids. So instead of signing our kids up right away to be in those spaces, because of course that would have been more convenient to us getting our work done and carrying on with the other expectations of our lives, we were able to pause and say, no, we we shouldn't take that space. Mm -hmm. Let's leave that space open. And then we're able to put our resources again where our values were and instead gave money to hold those spots Mm -hmm. for children who are more more vulnerable right now. Mm-hmm where the need is greater. Yeah, where there's a greater need. So, you know, there was that pull to want to do it and it certainly would have been easier for us and then we didn't. I think it is that thing where you have to embrace that this is a challenging time and there are a lot of things that sound nice and they're easier, but the reality is, you know, everyone's going through varying levels of challenge and you have to be honest with yourself and your partner if this challenge that you're going through is at that peak, or if it's more, it's out of the norm, it's a little uncomfortable, but we can handle it. And so to your point, you know, you guys realize that even though it would be easier, you guys to get your work done more, it's not like you 
still couldn't. And feeling like, like our kids are going to be all right. That question Mm -hmm. and that urge to like do something for them, like they're going to be okay. They're going to be great kids. They're going to keep growing and learning in all these different ways. And it's going to be okay. I think just has been reassuring to be like, it's going to be all right. If we really look at this situation, we are able to provide a place for them to sleep, consistent food. We can help them with their e-learning requirements. We're, We're going to be all right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after this short break. Greetings, Expeditioners. This episode is brought to you by Expedition Learn, Britannica's activity-based learning tool for children ages 5 to 12. Expedition Learn is focused on teaching kids how to learn instead of just what to learn, making it the perfect companion to online or blended classrooms. Blast off to your kids' full potential and go to Britannica.com expedition to get 30% off today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you been approached by other parents to do like a pod, you know, and like maybe turn that down or or something similar. I think people know me enough not to <laughs> ask me to do that kind of thing. Hmm. I haven't been approached about pods. I've thought a lot about what I might say if people have approached me about pods. And that part of it is what I feel like is I want to wait and see what schooling is really going to be like and how my kids are going to be experiencing it. I think one thing that can happen in this moment is we take a little bit of information and data that we have from our family's experience in the spring and we just go with that information and a feeling of there's the scarcity of resources like the those enriching educational experiences are limited now. And I have to grab that for my kid if my kid's going to have access to it. I think if I'm approached or when that happens, I think it's a matter of me sort of saying, you know, I want to wait and see what it's like. I want to wait and connect with my classroom community, my kids' classroom community, to see if we can use that space that does pull us together as a community and build from there. Mm -hmm. And that that's the way I want to move forward with any sort of potting that might happen, that it's through and in partnership with schools. And our school is a somewhat diverse school, economically, racially, and to make sure that the resources that I might be able to leverage to benefit my personal kids are leveraged to benefit more kids. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to ask you, you live in a city where there have been a lot of very visible protests. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if your children have had any questions or opinions about some of the protests and the issues going on right now. Yeah, you know, we talk pretty openly about different things that are happening in our community. And we use some clear language about racialized identities and talking about skin color as a primary indicator of racialized experience. I've taken my kids to protests and we've made 
made signs together of Black Lives Matter, police free schools now. We've talked about different ideas like that and really talked in sometimes really big terms about safety, fairness, and who should have power right now in making decisions, trying to get into some of like the history of over time. There hasn't been a chance, there hasn't been space made for Black people to influence what's happening in their communities. And so we want to make sure that their voices are the ones that we're following and the ones that we're uplifting right now. Mm -hmm. And a reason why I talk with my kids about that, and maybe this is an example also of like making the hard choice, you know, I want my kids to feel a sense of innocence in the world. Like I want my children to feel carefree and that the world is a a good place. Mm -hmm. However, my learning, my journey of learning, and it's certainly ongoing as, as a white person, is that that's not true. And to let them believe that the world is butterflies and and puppy dogs and protecting their innocence doesn't help them to build a better world. Mm -hmm. And that equipping them to know some of the problems that we're facing, especially around racism, helps them be the leaders that we need them to be and that they can be towards making changes. It feels nice to be able to bring that into our family life. Yeah, those are hard talks to have, but ultimately hopeful. Yeah. What you said reminds me of the podcast that Elizabeth and I did with a family therapist, Ellen B. And she was talking about all of these challenges that children are experiencing during the pandemic. But she also was so hopeful of the resilience that children are developing as a result of all the problem solving that they're doing. And they're learning a lot. Yeah, I think they are. I feel like I'm focusing on young children because my children are younger, but children really are so very capable of understanding these ideas. And they come to these big questions and issues with a lot of clarity. That's so refreshing to me, like trying to have this conversation and, you know, well, that's not right. (laughs) Like, why did that police officer do that? Why would they think that about that person? And to me that that is, it's very hopeful to hear Mm -hmm. a child be able to just like, well, we shouldn't do that. Like, all right, next step is how do we make sure we don't? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you bring up that hopefully parents who are listening that they realize like when kids have very adult questions that that actually is a great opportunity to try to explain it and explain what's going on. You know, it's easy to kind of assume that, oh, they're just asking that and they might not get it, but they do. And I think we are realizing that right now, especially with so many things happening all at once for younger kids, parents are starting to realize like they have a much bigger capacity for understanding and processing and to take those moments to use as teaching. Yeah, totally. And then one of my favorite strategies in all of this is I certainly don't get it right every time for sure, with mega mm-hmm. on how to have these conversations, or I say something that I'm thinking about later that was just like, oh, that wasn't the idea that I really wanted to emphasize there. Yeah. You know, I get to try again. I get to go back mm-hmm. to it and be like, remember when we were talking about this? Like, I've thought about it more, and I'm thinking about it this way now, and invite them into the conversation mm-hmm. that it really can be ongoing. It's uh, always reassuring, because I think every parent knows we don't do it right every time. <laughs> Right. And things evolve too. Their ideas, their questions. So you can always revisit the topic, whether you felt maybe you didn't convey what you wanted, or maybe you just feel like it's another day, new information has come. So we're going to just 
revisit the topic. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So it's a process and it's also a process starting the school year. And I really like what you said, Erica, about waiting to see what it's going to be like. I think there has been a lot of anticipation and anxiety around the school year getting started. Definitely. Yeah. And teachers need a little bit of time. Schools need a little bit of time to kind of get reoriented to what fall is going to be like. So I think one of the takeaways from this conversation is to parents to give it a little bit of time before you jump in and try to add on an enrichment experience or a tutoring experience or a pot experience. Just see what your school year is going to be like first yeah. and, and be patient with each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Be patient with the teachers and, and supportive of each other. Yeah. The other advice that I feel like you've conveyed in many different parts of the conversation today has been parents have that innate feeling of wanting to do everything they can for their kid, provide whatever they can. And so when opportunities or ideas might arise, especially in this time of uncertainty, they might narrow their thought and think, okay, well, this is great for my kid. I can help them there. And so another piece of advice is when things like this come up to take a step and kind of broaden that scope of view and really analyze, okay, yes, these are how this decision might impact our individual family, but how does it impact other families, the schools, the teachers, the district? Yeah, it's making me think of another step there is to really look at others who are dealing in these issues, because I guarantee in your communities across the country, there are leaders in the Black communities, communities of color who have been navigating equity issues in schools for a long time, and they can help you understand the consequences of your decision mm -hmm. by looking at their work and their activism and trying to understand their perspective. That has helped me and sort of my education with equity issues in education to know how my decisions influence a broader picture, mm -hmm. these layered things in our communities, but that seeking out those who have already been doing the work and trying to learn from them and follow their lead on what we should be focused on right now. Listening is always a good choice. <laughs> Erica, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I know these issues of equity and education are important to us all, and we've learned a lot and we've reflected a lot. And and thank you for speaking with us. You're so welcome. It was really a pleasure. I feel like I learn every time I'm, I'm talking about this. So thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Raising Curious Learners. Special thanks to our guest today, Erica Ramberg, faculty associate with the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, for helping us to begin the conversation surrounding inequity and in education and the way it has been made even more apparent during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Elizabeth Romanski, and my co-host is Anne Gadzikowski. Our audio engineer and editor for this program is Emily Goldstein. If you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, and share with your friends. This program is copyrighted by Encyclopedia Britannica Incorporated. All rights reserved. This episode is brought to you by Britannica for Parents, a free site with expert advice for your family. Whether you're wondering how to explain Zoom to your three-year-old or what to think about your child's new friendship with Siri, we're here to help at parents.britannica.com.